The Lord said, saw a great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I had made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So Gareth's going to uh, open up God's word a bit more to us now. Well, thank you very much, Gav. So, as Gav said, my name is Gareth, and I'm delighted to be back at G2 this afternoon. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, uh, I'm 24, and I'm currently in my first year at Cranmer Hall, which is a vicar factory in Durham. Now, before that, I was here at G2. Uh, initially, I got stuck in for a couple of years as a student, and then I stuck around for two more years as one of the student workers. Um, and I had the privilege initially of working with Cash Fletcher, who many of you will know, and then the next year I got to work with Holly Ward. Um, now, I'd like to think I taught Holly everything she knew, um, but that would be a blatant lie. Um, but I would say that possibly um, the biggest contribution I ever made to G2 was helping to persuade Holly to stick around in the first place. Now, no, seriously. <laughs> now, as you might expect, um, Training to be a vicar has reminded me that the Anglican, uh, Anglican community is uh, a beautifully broad church, and um, it doesn't always look like G2. Uh, now, I've spent a few months on placement in a wonderful church in Heaven, which is near Newcastle, uh, and I've had to get used to wearing robes when I lead or preach in services. And it's begun to feel almost, uh, and I stress, almost normal, um, but I am, uh, there we go, <laughs> I am delighted to be with you uh, today and not in robes, um, instead I am wearing what I guess is the G2 equivalent of clerical garments, that is chunky knitwear, um, because as I'm sure some of us will know, knitwear is, there we go, at least some people know liturgy here, there we go. <laughs> Anyway, all of this is to say um, that even though there are a fair few of you that I will not have met, uh, I really do feel today like I have come home. And I think that's a beautiful thing because church at its best is a place uh, and a community and a home for broken people to try and figure out together what it means to follow Jesus. And so with that in mind, why not turn to the person next to you or to the people on your table and just say, welcome home. Fantastic. Now, with that in mind, let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it, even through the difficult stories and the stories that seem strange and hard to understand. 
I pray that today as I speak that you would have something to say to G2 as a community, something that we would take forward in the coming weeks and something that would really inspire us. In Jesus' name, amen. So after kicking off a fortnight ago, we're continuing today with, our, with part two of our series on Noah. Um, and our series banner describes an epic tale of obedience, salvation and promise. Now I had a cheeky listen to the G2 podcast and to Josh's excellent opening talk. Uh, and one of the things Josh very helpfully acknowledged was that the Noah story is actually quite challenging. Now, of course, as we've said, this is an epic story and it contains many incredible themes as we've listed, but it's also a story um, which can be very, very difficult. Now, it's a story which has a place not just in the Judeo-Christian tradition, but is recorded in the Quran. It sits in a broader context of ancient Mesopotamian flood narratives such as Atrahashi's or Gilgamesh. Um, Now, by today, it is a Sunday school classic and has permeated popular culture. Now, not just with Darren Aronofsky's bonkers, yet rather fun uh, blockbuster, but with children's TV favourites, such as Noah's Island. Who here remembers Noah's Island? If I say oisty, you Yeah, again, we're getting the liturgy, it's good. And yet, despite all of this, if we're really honest, this can be a bizarre, brutal, and in some senses, bewildering story that on some levels can actually be quite troubling. Now, it features a 600-year-old protagonist who says absolutely nothing until after the flood when he curses his son in a bizarre incident which Christian gets the pleasure of telling you about in a few weeks. The centre point of the story is the mass destruction of the vast majority of humanity and creation at the hands of a flood which lasts maybe 40 days, maybe 150 days, or maybe a year depending on who you ask. And all of this is before you even get to the controversies about whether this was a global event or a local event, or whether or not it might be a parable or allegory. Indeed, this may well be a Sunday school classic, but I think we can be forgiven for approaching this story with our concerns and our queries. And yet, as we stand here engaging with a story that has undoubtedly captured the imagination of people for centuries, Uh, And this is true today as much as ever. And it's truly an epic story of obedience, salvation and promise. And it was the obedience showed by Noah that Josh talked about a fortnight ago. And next week, Holly will be talking about the promise God makes in his covenant with humanity. But this week, we are tackling one of the most significant, yet and awkwardly inescapable themes in the Noah narrative. Sin. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this word didn't make a poster. Now today, at the risk of sounding pretentious, I would really love us to explore together what this story has to say about the human condition and how God interacts with that. Now if you're of a notes-taking disposition and you like an enigmatic title for today's sermon, allow me to present The Days of Noah. Alternatively, if you fancy something a bit more glib and to the point, why not try how God responds to sin? Failing that, you could always add your own title at the end. Either way, I think what these titles reveal is that we are not engaging with the most easy or palatable of topics together. Perhaps the word sin makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you think of judgmental Christians who harshly criticise those around that they mean wrong or unworthy. 
You might think of people wearing sandwich boards, shouting at people. The word, or perhaps even the very concept, comes with a great deal of baggage. And almost appropriately, it can also seem poisonous or damaging. However, as I said before, my earnest goal today is to encourage you. Initially, this may not seem like the easiest of journeys, but hopefully the destination today will be one of joy and hope. Either way, we'll journey together. And with that in mind, why not turn to your neighbour or those on your table and say, we'll get through this together. I promise. Now, if we turn to our reading, which was Genesis chapter 6, we are given a brief yet brutal portrait of a broken world. Now, we don't get much in the way of specific detail or um, examples of what humanity might have been getting up to. However, if you look with me at verse 5, it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was evil continually. Now, that is a pretty damning description of humanity, lamenting not only their actions, but their very inclinations, their essence, their heart, their being. The Reformation theologian John Calvin wrote in his commentary that this showed that humans were not merely perverse by habit and by custom of evil living, but that wickedness was deeply seated in their hearts. Now, we've only managed to look at one verse, and already things seem pretty bleak. And the misery doesn't end here, however. Look with me at verse 11, which describes the world as corrupting God's sight and full of violence. In fact, verse 12 repeats that the earth was corrupt and that all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Violence, evil, corrupt. These appear to be the words that describe the days of Noah. And when I read verses 5, 11 and 12, and think about the world that they describe, I can't help but wonder what such a world would look like, feel like, smell like, even. Uh, perhaps it would smell like Ray Winston. Who knows? Now, the reality is that the text doesn't offer us a great deal of detail or specific examples. It just states plainly and blatantly, as if it was just obvious, that the earth had become evil. Now, this is not describing a single act of disobedience like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, or even a single act of violence like Cain killing Abel in Genesis 4. This is a blanket condemnation of, with the exception of one righteous man in his family, the entire human population, or indeed the entire created order. And when I ponder the world that is being portrayed in Genesis 6, the provocative question that comes to my mind is, how different is the world that's being described there to our world? How different is it? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that every inclination of the thoughts of the hearts of humans today, or indeed the humans in this room, is towards evil. But I am happy to say that we're all imperfect beings in a truly imperfect world, as we've just heard about how far would one, would one have to go to see corruption in our society and in our world? Would it be fair to say that on some level our world is full of violence? It would be easy to assume that the world portrayed in Genesis 6 is completely divorced from the age we live in. These are not like the days of Noah. How could they be? And yet, 
simply turning on the news or reading the headlines in a newspaper might give us a different idea, and it might suggest otherwise. And I don't stand here pretending to be a perfectly innocent bystander. Uh, I know that if I need to look and see imperfection, I need only look in the mirror. In fact, I ask myself, within this world, or within the world of Noah, what would be my place? Now, I don't think that I'm being too modest or self-deprecating by suggesting that I would not match Noah's accolade of being righteous among my generation. And I'm not trying to be harsh, I'm just trying to be honest. Now, the world is clearly full of beauty and brilliance, but it's also full of violence and corruption. And sometimes something as simple as just turning on the news can be really frightening. In fact, this is one of the reasons why people struggle to believe in or cope with the very concept that there might be an all-loving, all-powerful God. People look at the world and they wonder, what part might God play in all of this? Why does God allow the corrupt to rule, or wars to rage, or violence to happen, or people to suffer? And whilst he was referring more to natural evil, the essence of this thinking was captured very recently by Stephen Fry, whose thoughts I'm sure you will have seen on social media. But the concerns philosophers have called the problem of evil goes back long before the rantings of everyone's favourite national treasure. Famously, this argument is attributed to the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, who was around in the 4th and 3rd century BC. And he's credited with what's known as the Epicurean paradox, which reads, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither, neither able nor willing? then why call him God? Now I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and suggest that another way you might look at this or phrase this is, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why is the world seemingly so full of sin? Interestingly, these questions did not so much make Epicurus an atheist, but rather made him think that any God that was there must be distant or disinterested. And perhaps that idea that God might, must seem distant or disinterested is one that we would have resonated with at certain times in our lives. The idea of sin may seem like one which belongs to judgmental Christians, but actually I think that it's a concept that, however we frame it, or whatever we call it, it resonates with people, and to some degree transcends history, culture, or worldview. In the days of Noah, in the days of Epicurus, in the days of Stephen Fry, we wrestle with the imperfection of our world and what might God, our Creator, be doing about it. So if we look back to our story and our text, how does God respond to the sin that he has described in such no-holds-barred ways? Look with me at verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, this is potentially one of the most tragic verses in the entirety of Scripture. Here we have a God who, in Genesis 1, had looked upon creation and said that it was good, and he'd given it to humans to inhabit and enjoy. And yet here he is, five chapters later, and he's gutted at how things have turned out. It seems to me that this is not a simple portrayal of a raging deity, 
This is a portrayal of a God who looks at the world, its violence and its pain, and he does so with a broken heart. The renowned Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests here that we find a God who is not an angry tyrant, but a troubled parent who grieves. To me, this seems like this is the biblical, cosmic equivalent of God looking upon the world and saying, I'm not angry, I'm just really disappointed. And it seems to me that this does not portray a God who is casual or indifferent or disinterested about the suffering or the injustice of our world. This is a God who cares deeply about the nature of our lives. And this idea is echoed in scripture and can be seen really blatantly in Luke 19.41 when we see Jesus weeping over the temple in Jerusalem. He looks at the city that is about to reject him, not with anger but with tears. And these are the tears of a God who is for his people and who loves the people that will reject him. These are the tears of a God who looks upon the city whose demise is imminent. This is a God who looks upon his creation, however rebellious, not with disinterest or simple indignation, but with tears of longing. Now, of course, you may think this is all well and good, talking about divine heartbreak, when we know that what follows is destruction. And I guess we just need to look at verse 7. So the Lord said... I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Seemingly, God, in his heartbreak with the state of humanity, decides that the most reasonable course of action is to scrap the entire human project. Similarly, verse 13 has God saying that he will put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This, to me, seems like a gut-wrenchingly sorry state of affairs. It seems as if God has become so fed up with humanity that, in some senses, he has just given up and decided to press the cosmic undo button. And yet... We know that this is not the entire story. As Josh talked about, God calls Noah. He instructs him to build an ark, assemble two of each animal, and jump on board with his family. And so when the flood waters come in chapter 7, from the sky, bursting forth from the earth, the human race and the animal kingdom get another go. They get a second chance. So can we therefore look at the destruction in chapter 7 as a response to the evil described in chapter 6? All of this is a means to give humanity and all creation the fresh start needed in chapters 8 and 9. Was the death of guilty humans and the collateral damage of the animals that didn't make the pair, chosen pairs a painful yet necessary means of getting the creation project back on track? Was God getting rid of all of those that were violent and corrupt so that his man, his righteous man Noah, could kickstart the human project in an altogether more successful way? Well, maybe, or maybe not, at least not entirely anyway. Because things get rather interesting if we pick up the story shortly after the waters have subsided. Look with me either in your Bibles or on the screen at chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Do you notice something rather curious about these verses, particularly what God seems to be saying in verse 21? God promises never again to curse the ground, despite the fact that, that every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. That is to say, even after all the bad guys have been wiped out and we're seemingly left with one righteous man in his family, humanity is still highly imperfect. But in spite of that, God is not going to send destruction again. So in spite of everything that has taken place, the human condition that was in chapter chapter 6, verse 6, has not changed at all by chapter 8, 21. So what on earth is going on? What then was the purpose of all the destruction? Did God's plan somehow fail? Is God merely resigned to the fact that creation will be creation, so he might as well stick with it? Well, maybe, or maybe not. Perhaps this story has something altogether different to tell us about the way God interacts with people and his creation, however imperfect or sinful it may be. Perhaps this story tells us that God looks at a broken world, not as an angry tyrant, nor as a disinterested deity, but as a concerned father. Perhaps this story tells us that in spite of the fact that God is grieved by our waywardness, he is faithful to his creation. Perhaps this story tells us that God is not merely a God of second chances, but a God who is continually extending grace to his people. Perhaps this is a story that is actually less about death and destruction and more about salvation. And realistically, we don't need to rely on chapter 8, verse 21 to know that the human condition has remained in some senses imperfect. The rest of Noah's own story seems to suggest as much. The imperfect lived and fractured relationships of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph testify to this clearly. And that's only in the book of Genesis. The flaws and foibles of those God uses throughout the Old Testament and the New, whether it's Rahab or Samson, David or the disciples, is well documented and it's written down for all to see. The grand narrative of the Bible is one that says that despite everything, God is deeply committed to his people and his creation. And we see this more clearly than anywhere in the person and the life of Jesus and in his death, resurrection, and ascension. In Jesus, we see a picture of a God so committed to his people that he is willing to humble himself to enter his own creation. In Jesus, we see a God made flesh dwelling among us, walking alongside normal people like you and me. In Jesus, we see a God who is not distant or disinterested, but has a profound understanding of what it means to be human. In in Jesus' death on the cross, we see a God who is so determined to make salvation possible that he suffers the consequences of our mistakes on the cross. In Jesus' resurrection, we see a God who, in spite of his death, 
cannot be held down by the grave. And so he rose again, in turn, defeating death so that we might live. Whether in the days of Noah or in the days of you and I, we live in an imperfect world. Whether in the days of Noah or the days of you and I, we have a loving father whose heart breaks for the brokenness of our world. And as we think about the story of Noah within the broader scriptural narrative in which it's framed, we can ask ourselves the question once again, how does God respond to sin? How does God respond to the brokenness that Stephen Fry and Epicurus and so many others have talked about? Or more pointedly, how does God deal with and defeat sin? It is not by sending a flood, but by the sending of God the Son. And what we see in the story of Noah is that God could destroy almost all humanity should he so want, but that sinfulness would remain. And yet, rather than give up on his creation, God remains fiercely committed to his people. This means that in spite of, not because of our brokenness, God acts and God saves. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it like this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, whilst we were still human, he entered the world, violent and corrupt and broken as it was, and then he died for us. Why? Verse 9 and 10 continue. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, Christ died so that a just God, grieved by that which separates us from him, absorb the consequences of our imperfections on the cross. In other words, Jesus took the floods of judgment for us. And in so doing, and in dying on the cross, he made it possible for us not merely to be forgiven, but to be reconciled to him. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are able to be a people not condemned to the floods of judgment, but saved, not merely as stragglers on some kind of spiritual ark, but sons and daughters of God and citizens of his new creation. This is how, in the midst of the violence and corruption of the world around us, we can have hope, real hope in our God and the salvation that he offers. We have hope not in a distant deity, but in a God who loves us, who shares our grief, who draws near to us, who takes action and who has made salvation possible. Let's pray. Almighty Father, thank you that you are a gracious, loving and merciful God. Thank you that you entered this, your own world, humbly, so that you might walk among us, so that you might, so that you might encounter us, and so that we might be reconciled to you, so that we might be able to come to know you as sons and daughters, as children of you, God. We thank you that even in the difficult stories like Noah, your truth, your hope, and your love are revealed. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so.
this talk has very much been about how God responds to sin. Um, and the band are going to come back up now. Um, and what I guess I would like us to do now is think about if this is how God has responded to the world, and this is how God has responded to our sin, how might we respond to him? So, I don't know if uh, we're going to have potentially a couple of guys either discover Jesus sign and go to pray, that's something anyone feels like they want to do, if they really feel like they want to respond to God today. Alternatively, uh, we're going to sing now, so this is a great way to respond to who God is and what he's done for us.